This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ransomware has become one of the biggest cybersecurity problems in the world today, and it's become such a big problem that even world leaders are talking about it. But how did the ransomware issue become this bad, and what can be done to help stop it? I'm Danny Palmer. This is ZDNet Security Update, and with me to talk about ransomware is Teresa Payton, CEO of Forta Life Solutions and former CIO at the White House. Thanks for joining me, Teresa. So first of all, how did ransomware get to this point? Sadly, this has been a perfect storm in the making for many years, and at sort of the beginning of ransomware, we didn't know how good we had it at that point because uh, I remember Ted Claypool, who I've co-authored a couple books with him. He talked about the early days of the internet and basically young people uh, holding like files hostage and saying they wanted to be paid in a lifetime supply of ice cream. And I even remember in the early days of ransomware events where they wanted to be paid in like Starbucks gift cards uh, because they were trying to make sure that it wasn't traceable. In 2018, I predicted that both ransomware, destructionware, and extortionware uh, would become common household names, and I called it the carbon monoxide poisoning of cybercrime because it was so silent, so deadly, you didn't know until it was too late, and I could see that it was an emerging problem and a growing problem. Then cryptocurrency hits, and cybercriminals figure out, I have a way to potentially be virtually untraceable. And if I conduct ransomware events, most likely, even if it's attributed to me, I'm not going to see jail time and I'm going to be able to run off with the money. So they moved from doing ransomware against consumer computers and like just, you know, work computers to actually doing whole systems. And the better we get at combating ransomware, the more they sort of up their A game and they change their tactics. So think about this in the early days of ransomware. Everybody just made sure they had really good backups and they would kind of string the ransomware syndicates along while they were back, you know, using the backups to get back online. Fast forward. And now what's the first thing many ransomware syndicates do? They get in stealthily. They look for the cyber liability insurance policy to see what your coverages are. In some cases, the, the ransom, uh, ransomware syndicates in communication with the victim they tell them, I took, I took a look at your financial statements. I know how profitable you are. I know you can afford to pay. And then they find the backups and lock them up first before they actually let anybody know they're there. So that's why it's really hit sort of the, the zeitgeist of the boardrooms and the CEO discussions is because it seems like kind of this like new emerging threat, but it's really been around for a long time. And the playbook just gets better and better on sort of the, the bad guy side. That's uh, the key, one of the key things here. I mean, it's been around for a while. I remember you know, about five years ago when I was reporting on ransomware attacks, you're talking about things like Lockheed and Serber, which were asking for the grand total of $300 for your files back. Uh, 
And now you are lucky, I suppose, if they are asking for $300,000 because attackers are now getting even more brazen, asking for $3 million. We've seen uh, upwards of $30 million being demanded in some cases, uh, $70 million in in, in one of the more recent cases. And one of the problems here is that some of these major ransomware attack victims are paying. It's not rare anymore to see that a victim of a ransomware attack has paid something like $10 million to cyber criminals because they seem to view that as the only way to uh, restore their network. Though, of course, there's a big caveat here in in that they are trusting cyber criminals to hold up their end of the bargain, which even if they do get the pay for the decryption key, sometimes these decryption keys don't work and the cyber criminals run off with the money. So it's just... uh, it just seems to have got really bad this year in particular. It really has. And I mean, you brought up a really great point, Danny, which is, you know, that there is truly no honor among thieves. So there's this conventional wisdom that if you pay, um, they're going to give you the keys because they don't want to get a bad reputation. They, they actually don't, they don't care. <laughs> they don't care what their reputation is because they'll, we've seen, well, they're, they'll shut up shop and then they'll just recalibrate, come up with a new name, new affiliates, recruit new people, and just come back, you know, bigger and better than ever with a new business model. Um, so there's this conventional wisdom that you're going to restore faster. It's going to be seamless. You're going to get the keys quickly, unlock them, and be back up and running much faster than on, on backups. And I have to tell you, we do incident response. We work with companies who call us because they're desperate to not have to pay. And in some cases, we have companies call us that have paid, didn't get the right keys, didn't get any keys, got some keys, keys start to decrypt the data and they're corrupting the data as they decrypt because guess what? They're not the greatest programmers in the world. And and so my goal would be, and that's why Danny, I was so thrilled when you reached out to me, my goal would be to empower people to come up with the basic building blocks so that when they become a victim, they don't have to pay, or at least they have more options. Two other disturbing trends I'm seeing. And now, again, I'm a very small sample size, so I'm not saying this is writ large happening in the industry, but a few of the cases we've worked and talked to victims where they paid and then they called us to kind of do the remediation. I asked them, do you mind me asking why did you feel compelled to pay? Because I'd like to put you in a position where you never feel compelled to pay again. And in some cases they say, well, our backups were locked up and we didn't have our backups stored offline out of band. So we didn't have another option. In some cases though, what they're telling me is either their legal counsel internally or externally said, I'm doing a back of the napkin exercise on your legal fines, you should just pay make this go away. It'll be cheaper to pay the bad guys, you know, the schoolyard bully, it's cheaper to pay them than to deal with all the penalties after the fact. In some cases, they're being told by their cyber liability insurance company, uh, the cost to pay you for loss of productivity, for all of the ongoing downstream costs, uh, the cost to get your systems back up and running again, we believe that's more expensive than just paying the ransom. So victims are getting sort of pushed into a corner where they don't want to pay, but they feel like they've run out of options. And so my goal is, how do we give people more options? 
as you said, uh, even if they do pay, there you know that there's still issues. And there was the recent case where the Irish healthcare service fell victim to Conti ransomware. But in this case, they didn't pay the ransoms. It seems that the attackers realised they'd hit a hospital and thought, okay, maybe. No, we need to do something here. They gave them the encryption key, still kept the data they stole on file, still said they'd release that. But even with the decryption key, it has taken months for the Irish healthcare service to uh, restore the network. And even uh, as, as recently as last month, uh, they said that you know, this was going to affect uh, services going forward. So a cyber attack has affected healthcare services in, in, in an entire country. You know, it, it, it didn't affect the, uh, the, the rollout of the vaccine. But there are other instances, uh, like uh, recently in Italy, where ransomware attacks have hit that. And it's just one of those things where uh, people might think, oh, ransomware, it's just a cyber thing. It's just encrypting some files and data. But as you've seen in recent examples in healthcare or the colonial pipeline, it, a ransomware attack can have major, uh, for want of a better phrase, real world consequences. And that's caused uh, the authorities and governments, uh, national security agencies to, to take notice and uh, look into ransomware much more seriously this year. No, you're right about that. And uh, I've been following these stories um, both in the United States and internationally. And when I see it hit healthcare, I mean, it, it breaks my heart to see it because you know, you've got these frontline workers who are just exhausted by the pandemic and everything else that's going on. And they're just trying to save lives and make people's healthcare better. And then they have to deal with something like this. It's, it's, it's unthinkable, unimaginable. And again, it just proves there is no honor among thieves. It, don't believe what they tell you when they tell you, oh, we have a pact. We're not gonna impact you know, critical infrastructure or hospitals. Don't believe them for a minute. Uh, they're criminals. Okay, they, they are not good people uh, and they really don't care what the downstream impacts are. They're just trying to make a buck and do it in a very dishonest way. Um, one of the things that when I think about what some of these groups are going through and thinking about giving people more options not to pay, on like a very basic level, one thing that any organization can control is thinking about your backups. Um, do you have, so if you're all in on the cloud, get a separate cloud services provider and send a second copy of your backups there and do it in such a way it's not in your normal enterprise architecture. It's not something that cyber criminals can move laterally to go to it. So it could be cold storage, it could be offline, or it could be something that you, you do and you send, and there's not an easy way to move laterally over there. So the other piece is test test those critical systems, do an exercise, not just the playbook, but do a technical exercise. Can you access those backups? When you access them, how long does it take? How long before you know the data is valid? And you know, actually time yourself so you know how long it takes. Do that in test mode. The other thing to be thinking about is uh, if you are having to actually deal with a ransomware event, and you need to start flipping those kill switches, you know, unplugging things from the internet, actually take a time that you can practice doing that. You don't wanna be learning what plug goes to which and which switch goes to which. Do it in a controlled, measured way. It'll help you with your business continuity. It will help you with resiliency. 
and it will help you across multiple types of cyber incidents, not just ransomware. Sometimes it, you hear that uh, the companies, organizations, their cybersecurity departments don't necessarily have the budget they want in order to help protect networks. So if they're, what should CIOs and CISOs be doing to go to their board to say, can we look, look we need these resources to protect against uh, no, these various types of cyber attacks? I imagine uh, one of the key things they could probably say would be, would probably be, it's going to be cheaper to defend our network than pay out however tens of millions of, of dollars it costs if they get hit by ransomware. You know, one of the best ways to get their attention is to conduct a very thoughtful exercise, a ransomware exercise, where you bring in a playbook, you bring in a scenario. Don't, don't try to make the scenario, you know, something that a Hollywood movie would be made of. You know, pick something very realistic and allow your executive team to walk through the decision-making process. Because as they walk through the decision-making process, they're gonna ask, well, where, where are our backups? How many backups do we keep? Like they're gonna ask questions naturally as part of that exercise. And that will give you the opportunity to show your executives in a, in a real way that they can digest and make decisions upon and you can show them, here's where we have maturity, here's where we're lacking, and we're going to need budget so that we can bolster our defenses. Uh, and that's really the best way. And it doesn't cost a lot of money to do that. And it's something that you need to do. And it will definitely help you with those budget asks for cybersecurity. You know, the other thing I would say is, you know, ask yourself, have you done some of the basics? And can you report out on those basics to your executives? For example, uh, you know, telling them, we look at anomalous behavior in logins, whether the logins are remote or whether they're actually sort of in our brick and mortar infrastructure. You know, critical infrastructure, many people do have to work in the office. They can't work from home. Um, and, and give them the results of that and let them know how many things are you detecting and deflecting every day? You know, sometimes they may not understand the magnitude of what you're already dealing with. And then show them some type of a maturity model. You know, it depends on what industry you're in, but pick a regulatory framework or pick an international framework that applies to you and just start self-assessing and benchmarking yourself. Over time, you'll be able to use that to do the business case and to show we're going to be enabling your business resiliency and recoverability if we do these security things. Some attacks have drawn the attention of the White House. I mean, what element does uh, this play here in terms of governments getting involved in uh, trying to protect and defend against uh, ransomware? Because I can imagine if you're a ransomware gang and suddenly you have the, the, the White House on your back, it might be slightly off-putting. But then as we've seen, uh, one ransomware gang that said it was shutting down operations has, because of allegedly pressure, pressure from the White House, seems to have now re-emerged under a different name. So what, what role can you know, that sort of uh, pressure from uh, government bodies have in this whole situation? I, that, and I, I love the fact that you brought that up, that President Biden um, not only used very strong language in his conversations, whether it's with Putin or other world leaders, um, but he also put out executive orders, which 
uh, compel departments and agencies in the United States to think differently about ransomware. And what we really do need is we can't continue to say to nonprofits and organizations and businesses everywhere, you need to do better. You need to spend more and you need to do better. That's not enough. That is not enough. So yes, just like many businesses have private security companies that help them with their physical security. But if you think about it, many countries have a police force, they have a military force, and then there's a shared responsibility at the local level around how to protect citizens, how to protect businesses. We have to do the same thing as far as defending organizations from cybercrime. And it's going to take international leaders coming together and hammering out an international accord that defines once and for all what constitutes a cybercrime. If there is attribution and everyone agrees on attribution, what are the ramifications for committing a cybercrime? And nations have to come together. So if an Irish hospital is hit, the United States needs to stand up and say, an attack against an Irish hospital is an attack against us. And we are gonna put our resources together to help them combat and defend and prosecute whoever did this to them. We need those international courts. We need a follow-on. We need an international fusion center that is helping us think about how can we proactively shut down the infrastructure, shut down access to cryptocurrency wallets for these uh, different ransomware syndicates and, and have a coalition that does that. And you know, almost like we have peacekeeping forces, we need it to combat cybercrime. So we have to come together internationally to actually combat this real and present danger because it's not just about the money and we don't know what the money's funding. I mean, it would, you know, some people think you're funding like Lamborghinis and Ferraris, but in some cases you're participating in money laundering and that money laundering could be funding horrible things such as human slavery and trafficking. It could be money laundering for terrorist financing. We don't know what we're funding. And that's a concern as well. So that international accord and coming together definitely needs to happen. It's long overdue. So looking uh, slightly to the future, you discussed previously uh, when we started talking how you, you saw you know, what was happening this year, uh, a few years ago. What do you think could be the situation in a few years, I suppose in, in two regards, if there is some clampdown on ransomware, if this action works, and what could happen if it no, doesn't work, if ransomware is allowed to continue to evolve as we've seen it evolve over the last uh, two years? Yeah, we, we are making great strides. Um, countries with um, information sharing and actionable intelligence sharing, and that is all very promising. And I have a lot of optimism about that cooperation that has started and you know, coming up with different ways to combat these ransomware syndicates. However, um, I made a prediction in 2020 for 2022. And one of those predictions, I usually do about 10 predictions and I look two years out because 12 months out is too easy. So I look two years out. And my prediction is that a 5G smart city will actually be held for ransom. Uh, and, it, I don't see anything happening right now that tells me that prediction is not going to come true. 
Um, I, I wish I, I could tell you right now, I see a transformational effort and we're gonna shut down ransomware syndicates once and for all. But right now they still have the opportunity, the financial motive is there. And what's interesting is if you think about it, like we've had enough opportunities to crack a few cases with some, some really great skilled analysts in law enforcement and private sector. And most of that has involved Bitcoin. We're starting to see victims tell us, do you know what this Monero is? Because they don't want Bitcoin, they want Monero. So do you see what happens? Like as we start to get the tactics, techniques and protocols down of the cyber criminals and we know what to do, they just move to a new tactic, technique and protocol. Uh, so I just don't see enough progress being made that we're going to be able to eradicate ransomware. I see it getting a lot worse, unfortunately, um, before we really figure out how to tackle it and it gets better. With that in mind, and we might have touched on this uh, slightly earlier as well, but what's one thing that uh, organizations should be thinking about in order to uh, protect their networks and, and not be the next one that we're talking about saying you know company x has become victim of a ransomware attack so the, there's a couple things that really work um for starters on a periodic basis and and you can do this for free for people who are on a tight budget take all of the major players in your organization and go to the password dumps and look for your corporate, your organization's emails, especially the CEO, the CFO, and anyone who has administrative access to any of your systems. Look for those email accounts, look for those passwords, and think about actually abandoning email accounts that are in password data dumps that have access to core things, either core systems, core logins, money movement. Maybe get brand new email accounts for those that you use no place else. It makes it a lot harder for the bad guys to guess how to get in. The next thing to look at is any of your remote access platforms. You have to be logging activity. You have to be using behavioral based analytics to tell you this doesn't make sense. Danny rarely logs in from a location other than this, this time of day, this day of the week we need to call Danny and see if it's really him. So have those anomalous behaviors as something that goes to a human who thinks about analytically, is this really Danny or is this something else? And then lastly, kind of the, the whole thing around out of band storage for those backups and really be thinking about playbooks. Do a playbook for that whole thing around extortion where I've got your data and I'm gonna dump it all over the internet or I've got your critical system and I'm not gonna give it back to you and I might even delete it. Um, so be thinking about those playbooks and how you're gonna combat that. And if you can do those things, the next phase of maturity that can be really, really helpful is thinking about micro segmentation of user access controls, uh, domains and data. And if you can do that, then when you find out you might be under attack, you can start to, because of that segmentation, you can start flipping those kill switches and hopefully contain the ransomware to maybe something that's not as mission critical. Thanks, Teresa. That's some really good advice and a lot to think about here on the subject of ransomware. Uh, thanks for joining me on ZDNet Security Update. And for more information on how to keep your network safe from ransomware and other cyber attacks, uh, be sure to keep watching the ZDNet YouTube channel. And of course, there's plenty of news articles and features on ZDNet.com. Thanks for watching.